You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're talking about cryptozoology. Yes, I'm going to pronounce it cryptozoology. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to stop me. Uh, except unsubscribe, I guess. P please don't do that. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hello. I'm excited to get to our topic today because it's super fun. But first, it's been a while since we offered some dubious advice. So, <laughs> why don't we start there? I got a message the other day from a friend of the show who was distressed to discover that his workplace had hired a naturopath as a wellness coach. Ooh. He writes... When I heard about the idea, I tried politely raising some of my concerns to my CEO. She seemed receptive, but nothing really went through. After an info session with a naturopath, there was the classic doctors only treat symptoms, some stuff about acupuncture, etc., I tried to provide some articles against some of the things she was promoting. But I phrased it like, it's important to hear both sides of the debate so that you can make a more informed decision about your health. I had a couple of people tell me they were glad I said something, but I'm pretty sure the HR person who organized the whole thing hates me now. I figure you've probably come across situations like this before. I presented a few facts, and I tried to do so non-confrontationally, and I certainly didn't tell people they were wrong or go on a rant, but part of me feels nervous. Do you think I should stop? Is it worth it? What do you folks think? It's a well, tough I'm, situation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the confrontational one in the group, so I'm always... <laughs> keep at it until they change it. <laughs> yeah. Are you forced to see this naturopath? I don't believe so. Based upon what he said, I, I think that it is just an additional service that's being provided. Uh, and there were there was an info session, so we're probably looking at a couple of seminars or something. But I don't think it's mandatory. Well, if your job is on the line, I would just kind of ignore the fact that it exists. <laughs> but that's not always the best course of action. <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, I think that he approached a very difficult situation in the best way that he could. It's always... Mm -hmm tough to have your worldview challenged and the person with whom we're disagreeing may respond negatively kind of no matter what we do mm -hmm. uh, no matter how polite we are i mean there are lots of good reasons to be polite and respectful of course but you just shouldn't expect it to guarantee success uh, i always try to gauge the situation you know consider what outcomes might occur and decide whether the cost of saying something is likely to be worth it uh, in this case, having made uh, your best case, I would probably let it lie for a while and see what happens, see if anything changes. I'd be firm when it comes up, but otherwise I wouldn't try to get into a fight because in addition to making yourself pretty unpopular around the office and ironically perhaps coming off as an ideologue, <laughs> you might jeopardize your position with the company, as Lauren mm -hmm. is saying. Mm -hmm. now, I know Ashlyn is more pugilistic in these cases than I am sometimes. I'm also my own boss, so... <laughs> <laughs> But it's good that you have support from some other people. Is Yeah, and 
Uh, if you're going to bring it up again, I found that the best tactic is to discuss specifics. Like, she said that IgG testing is important. Uh, here's Health Canada saying that it's not, for example. <laughs> yeah. uh, rather than generalities, like, unlike medical doctors, naturopaths only receive a two-year degree, and it's not science-based. One of the reasons for that is that it will seem more like you're engaging with the material and you're responding to specific things rather than just attacking her or her profession or, or whatever. Yeah, and you're not just writing it off and Entirely, you're saying, well, here are some specific things she said that are totally wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And that'll make a better case down the road if you do want to try and help change something. It, it, yeah, the specifics of it don't, don't really matter, especially if the person who organized it maybe is following that sort of belief set or what often happens is that they know somebody. They know somebody personally who yeah, happens to be this. It's a friend. So they have an emotional stake regardless of their own beliefs and that. Personally, I wouldn't bother taking on acupuncture, for example, because there's sufficient, low-quality, unconvincing, often refuted evidence out there that uh, anyone who isn't involved in science-based medicine, uh, for those people, the water is kind of muddy. Uh, and anyone really can find a paper that will support their particular views, and it's easy to come off as a meanie if you're attacking something like that. Uh, we do know that despite what acupuncturists claim, it doesn't matter where you place the needles, and sham acupuncture with toothpicks works just as well as the real thing in clinical trials, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's honestly, it's hard for me to believe that the whole doctors only treat symptoms thing is still a meme that's around. <laughs> <laughs> Have naturopaths ever heard of, like, vaccines? Well, I guess a lot of them are anti-vaccine. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> but like them. They just don't like them. Antibiotics, antiretrovirals, chemotherapy, like, diagnostic testing of any sort, any surgical intervention ever, f***ing bone setting. Have these people <laughs> even ever been to a doctor? Like, how do you say they only treat the symptoms? Maybe they're all, like, Christian scientists. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody is going to give you the... What's the harm cop-out? Well, you need to look no further than the horrifying recent case of oh. Ezekiel Stefan, the 19-month-old yeah. whose parents took him to a naturopath in 2012 instead of a doctor and who subsequently died of bacterial meningitis. Ezekiel's parents were recently convicted of neglect, although the naturopath, who prescribed an herbal remedy without examining or even seeing the child at any point, will almost certainly face no charges. Wasn't uh, Ezekiel's father... Like, doesn't his dad run a... Yes. His father founded a nutritional, nutritional. supplement. And yeah. the parents sell it. Yeah. yeah. And that's a primary, or at least a portion of their income. So, yeah, you know, this, these natural remedies are certainly part of their ideology, mm -hmm. part of their belief system. But there's no standard of care for naturopathy, and there's very little oversight. Although in Alberta, there's a governing body now. There's a college, but really, among other things, that just serves to legitimize the practice uh, without providing any real protections. So... Naturopathy! Yay! I guess. Incidentally, I really like giving advice, so if you guys have any questions about anything at all, it doesn't have to be related to our podcast even, just send them to me. I'll answer them <laughs> on air or by email. You can have an Auntie Ashley. Yeah, you'll, you'll be our, uh, our listener's agony aunt. Yes. Let's move on to our main topic for today. Zoology is the study of animal biology, including the evolution, classification, and habits of animal species, both living and extinct. The term zoology comes from the Greek zoion, uh, meaning animal, and logos, meaning knowledge. We arrive at cryptozoology by adding the prefix cryptos, which means hidden or secret, and cryptozoology is the study of cryptids, which is to say animals whose existence is disputed or unproven to be 
as charitable as possible. <laughs> I, I find it actually pretty incredible that we haven't covered this topic yet. Like we're 108 episodes in on a skepticism <laughs> podcast and we haven't done Bigfoot. <laughs> so I think that kind of speaks to the fact that skepticism does have a lot more to say than Bigfoot and UFOs. Yeah. And, you know, on our show, we do try to cover a, a wider range of topics than uh, maybe some skeptical magazines will typically feature. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's not just Bigfoot, UFOs, and Altmed, because skepticism is a tool set and it can be widely applied. But it is fun to go back sometimes and kind of cover the basics. The and uh, yeah, you know, because this this is this is fun stuff. It's not solving tough. homelessness. Yeah, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it's maybe less tough and maybe less valuable. But hey, you know, we gotta have fun sometimes. Yeah. We were at a, a party earlier, and somebody asked us what our podcast was about, and we said, you know, science and skepticism and critical thinking, and said we're you know this is our hundred and eighth episode we're about to record, and. I said, oh, well, what kind of topics do you do? I said, well, you know, last month was homelessness, and this month we're doing cryptozoology. There's a lot of things that fall under the critical thinking umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, many animals classified as cryptids, like Bigfoot or Nessie, have never been scientifically documented and probably, again being charitable, don't exist. Uh, some real animals can also find themselves classified as cryptids. Anyone have any guesses as to how this can happen? Uh, if they are thought to be extinct and then reappear? Yeah, uh, basically. Uh, this will typically happen when an animal is sighted in the wild far outside of its indigenous range, as is the case with the so-called phantom cats, where people will be like walking around in British Columbia and they're like, holy sh**, giraffe! <laughs> <laughs> or when cryptozoologists claim, uh, against the preponderance of evidence, that an extinct animal still exists, uh, as is the case with the thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger, mm. the last of which, sadly, died in captivity in 1936. Those things are awesome by the way. Well, Have you seen the videos? Yeah. Oh. Uh, they were, uh, zoos were not great places back then. Let's just, let's just put it that I mean, way. They're still not the best now. No. <laughs> so cryptozoology is to zoology what parapsychology is to psychology. And like parapsychology, which we discussed a couple episodes ago, cryptoz cryptozoology is generally not recognized as a branch of zoology. Instead, finding itself regarded as a pseudoscience. Cryptozoologists will retort that since species once dismissed as hoaxes, mythologies, or superstitions, uh, such as the Okapi and the Komodo dragon, were later legitimized, the scientific community should take reports of folkloric creatures more seriously. Unfortunately, few, if any, new species have actually been discovered by cryptozoologists, and the purported megafauna that their efforts focus on are highly unlikely to exist due to factors related to climate, food supply, and the difficulty in maintaining a sufficiently large breeding population while somehow evading detection by mainstream science for centuries. And just because you call something a dragon doesn't mean it's a dragon. <laughs> to quote Carl Sagan, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and cryptozoological claims are not accepted by mainstream zoologists precisely because they're so extraordinary. As usual, I'll point out for those who want to quibble with what qualifies as an extraordinary claim that this is simply another way of saying that a claim has a very low Bayesian prior probability. And we can get into Bayesian oh, statistics bad. if you want to write in. No, I'll don't. happily give you another math lesson, or you can look <laughs> it up. <laughs> so, uh, what kind of extraordinary evidence is on offer to support these claims? Well, mostly anecdote coupled with the occasional blurry video. <laughs> 
Hardly anything extraordinary. Uh, wishful thinking and the misidentification of wildlife is sufficient to explain most sightings. And because the bar for evidence is set so low, cryptozoologists find themselves a frequent target for hoaxers, as we will see. But before we talk about hoaxes, Laura is going to tell us about one of the more plausible cryptids, perhaps. Can you tell us about the Maltese tiger? Okay, so I'd never heard of this creature before Jem put it as one of the suggested topics, and uh, I thought it was quite interesting. So for anybody else who's like me and has never heard of it, a Maltese tiger is basically a tiger that is a slate gray, blue gray color with black stripes instead of the standard orange and black stripes. Other than that, it's a typical Asian tiger found in China and surrounding areas. Not there. from Malta? It is not from Malta. So... And it's distinct from like a white tiger? It is, yeah. So it's supposed to be, um, it's not necessarily even a separate species. It's just a separate coat color, basically. Like a subspecies, I guess, is how you would describe it. So it's not a fantastical creature per (laughs) se. Um, It's really just that it has this really odd color. So... Where the Maltese comes in is that that's actually a term used for cats because cats that have a slate gray, particularly with a bluish tinge, are typically called Maltese. And the reason for that is apparently there are a lot of cats of that color in Malta. So I've I've been to Malta. There's definitely no tigers there. Uh, maybe I don't even know if they have a zoo there. If they have a zoo, maybe, but that would be the only one. (laughs) And I also didn't see a whole lot of slate gray cats there either, but hey, maybe that was in a different part. Anyway, so that's... Were there like a lot of feral stray cats wandering around? Is it one of those kinds of places? I don't recall that in Malta. Yeah, I didn't see any. Because I know that's like a big problem in Rome and places like that. Yeah, yeah, Malta's very, very small. There's, what, 600,000 people on the whole island or something like that? About 450,000 people. It's incredibly small. It's a very (laughs) small island. There was more cats when it was bigger in shipping. I imagine that there was. That makes sense, yeah. So there were a lot of cats back then, and I guess that was a type of cat that was there. I just want to add that there definitely are Maltese tigers. Um, there's a wildlife park in Malta that specializes in big cats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is Maltese, uh, not so much in the coloration, but in the yes. uh, ethnicity, I suppose. There are pictures of them. They're bright orange. So anyway, that was a really long way of explaining why this tiger has its name. So the first sighting of the the Maltese tiger dates back to about 1910 in Fujian province in China. And it was by a, uh, I believe an American missionary named Harry Caldwell. And he reported in, in a book that he wrote that he saw this blue tiger and he and his partner tried to hunt it and they couldn't catch it. And he goes on a long explanation about it, but that's the first recorded instance that we hear of it. The most recent and second most well-known instance is from a man whose father was serving as a soldier in the Korean War, and the father claimed to have seen this in (laughs) Korea around what is now the demilitarized zone. That's a shaky tale. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple shaky things. There's no photographs at all. You will find what appear to be photographs online, but they're artist's renderings where the orange Mm -hmm. color is changed to the slate gray. yeah. So there's really not a lot of evidence. There are some other tales from that area as well. But again, there's no pictures. There's never been any pelts, any specimens found, anything like that. So it could be that this did exist at some point. 
Um, it's kind of shaky, but there is some potential scientific background. So a lot of cats, but tigers in particular, have a couple different genes that control their coloring. So they have one type of gene that makes the stripes happen and the other type of gene that makes the orange color happen. So things like Siberian tigers, they're the gene that controls the orange works differently. So that's why they're white instead of orange. So there, and then there's some that are, I forget the name of the tiger, but you'll, you'll see some pictures and instead of those stripes being really deep black, the stripes are more of a tan golden color yeah. and the gold or the orange is a lot more gold and a lot more white in it. Mm -hmm. So they're just, they can look kind of washed out overall. So they, so these genes can function differently and we do have instances of this. So some, uh, some people have proposed that if this Maltese tiger actually exists, the stripes gene works properly, but the orange gene is not working properly and it's causing the slate gray color. This has been observed in a few cheetahs. They have seen that. So cheetahs have that kind of gray color, but again, it's never been seen in in tigers and cheetahs and tigers don't exactly live in the same place. They're no. as much as they're both big cats, they're not exactly uh, siblings per se. They fill niches in different ecosystems. Absolutely. So it's not unheard of. A lot of people do also think that that's plausible, but highly, highly unlikely. And if the animals did exist, they probably don't anymore because of loss of habitat and or hunting or mm -hmm. just the fact that they there's just a few mutations out there. There was probably never a, a large enough population to sustain an ongoing uh, mutation like that. Even if they do go away, at least we'll always have the Ricardo Cortez movie. So the Maltese tiger potentially could exist, but probably doesn't. It'd be cool if like someday in a zoo somewhere, one was just born and we're like, whoa. Yeah. All right. We'd I have guess. to do an addendum. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a absolutely. combination of genes worked out. Absolutely. And, and I found that this was interesting because it's not like a lot of the cryptids. There's nothing fantastical about it. It's just kind of an interesting color and it's plausible. Well, I mean, it does work with the panther and the jaguar. Yeah. the panther is just a jaguar with darker all over, because you can still see the, the spots. Right, there. absolutely. And there's actually regular tigers that are like that, where they're, the gene that controls the stripes is hyperpigmented. So they're called black tigers. They're not actually fully black, but their stripes are just super, super wide. So most of the orange is covered up there. Mm -hmm. So again, like these kinds of things happen in nature. It's it, it happens, especially if you have like a subpopulation or something somewhere, these kinds of things can get bred in, yeah. but uh, probably we won't get any beautiful blue gray tigers. <laughs> if you do look at any of the artist renderings, they're really beautiful animals. They are, they're gorgeous. So no dying your cats. No, don't dye your cats. If you really want a gray cat, just get a gray cat. <laughs> she says looking at the two gray cats in the corner. <laughs> I'm thinking of my own gray cat at home. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've covered the MacGuffin that got this whole episode started, uh, why don't we move on to talking about water dinos? Water dinos! Yay! Well, the most famous water dino and one of the most famous cryptids ever is Nessie, of course, and Nessie is proposed to be a very large sea monster that lives in Loch Ness in Scotland. And people have been reporting sightings for years, and there are all those fuzzy pictures that you can find on any uh, website about them. But my favorite thing to talk about with regards to the, the Nessie-like monsters is the theory that they might be plesiosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally plausible, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, because <laughs> Loch Ness definitely has enough area to sustain a breeding population of plesiosaurs, which is what it would take <laughs> to have... a uh, 
water dinosaur cited, you know, every few years for what, like a century? They ju- they've just been mega dosing on like vitamin C, right? They uh, <laughs> have, have we not? <laughs> they've been taking their uh, their uh, advice from Ray Kurzweil. All right. Anyway. <laughs> So Nessie has been reported um, as far back as 1802, but if, you know, some people like to go back in the histories and the chronicles and find like, oh, this is definitely a mention of the same creature. And so they say that there have been mentions as far back as 565, which is a long time for anything to live. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there would have to be a, a fairly large breeding population in this lake in order for that to happen. And there's just no plausibility to that at all. I, I find it hard to believe that a lake the size of Loch Ness could sustain any sizable population of plesiosaurs, yeah. like just from a food supply perspective. Yeah, it's just not big enough. One of the better explanations for this, because there are other sea monsters that have been reported all over the world. Um, Ogopogo is uh, a Canadian one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a, a delicious brand of cider that has Ogopogo as a mascot. Not to be outdone, Lake Manitoba is apparently home to the Winnipogo monster. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that one was just made up to get some, you know, get on the bandwagon. Right. <laughs> Probably. But the the best explanation that we have for this sort of plesiosaur myth is uh, the way that different animals decompose in the ocean. Whenever anything has sort of washed up on the shore and people have been like, oh, it's totally a plesiosaur, it's a sea monster, it's, it's you know, ex-mythological creature. Um, now we have better methods of figuring out what it actually is, including DNA testing. And most of the time it turns out to be sperm whales. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. And actually the way that sperm whales decompose is really interesting because... You would think that you'd be able to, like, find the bones and and figure out what it is that way. But the way after they die, they sort of just shed all of their blubber at once. And that's what tends to wash up on shore. So it's just sort of a formless, weird thing with fins. Huh. So it's just all the soft bits of them? Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not actually sure what happens to the bones. They they must sink. Well, they would sink, but then the blubber and that's all fat. So it would rise without the weight, right? And washes ashore. And people find these blobular sea monsters. Yeah, so this has probably been happening for hundreds of years, as long as sperm whales have been around. And people have been finding them and going like, holy crap, this is clearly not a whale. It's just a pile of blubber. Right, (laughs) right. And so that's why things like DNA testing can be so super useful in these cases. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I think that uh, Nessie and the sea monsters are sort of one of the more well-known ones. So I just wanted to give a quick overview. Right. These are some things people believe, and this is what probably is actually happening. And we know now that the most famous photo of Nessie, I just wanted to add, uh, has been admitted as like a total hoax. Yeah, that was the surgeon's photo. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to, uh, to more information in the show notes. Yep. There's also actually, <laughs> you, you could have a breeding population and a, a, pretty, uh, a, a pretty solid food supply if it would just range a little farther. I mean, apparently, recently, the Loch Ness Monster was spotted in the Thames. So... <laughs> I wouldn't eat anything that came out of the Thames. <laughs> just that's that's that a good out. point. Nessie's too good for that. So I remember when I was younger, 
reading about Loch Ness Monster, and I don't know if I was totally into it or not, but it's one of those things that's interesting as a kid because it's mm-hmm. different, right? And there's all this mystery around it. Anyway, and I remember one of the theories on how it could survive for so long is that there's actually deep underwater caves that link Loch Ness to other bodies of water, and so that's how the animals get around and get enough food and things like that. So did you come across any actual evidence for that? I did not. That is some special pleading right there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was but, featured uh, in that shitty Ian Holm movie. I don't know which called? one. There were so many shitty Ian Holm movies. <laughs> it was about Loch Ness. I don't remember. Maybe it was just called Loch Ness. It was just called Loch Ness. And uh, it also starred Ted Danson. Oh, Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting theory. I used to be super into all those books that were like a thousand and one unsolved mysteries or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Nessie and the pyramids and everything. Every conspiracy theory was always in there. I loved them. So uh, since we're covering the the big ones, uh, why don't we move on to uh, Bigfoot and other manapes? Yes. That's the, for those who are curious, that's the term I gave Jem earlier this week. We were calling them manapes. But it was manipes, like canapes. And... I love that term. <laughs> you that put term it all awesome. together in one word. Yeah. yeah. Manipes. Manipes. So, like Ashlyn and Laura were saying, I also have a confession. I love cryptids. If you listened to the end of our last show when Jem announced it, I believe I got a little woohoo in there when he said cryptids. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I edited it out. But I love tracing the different yet similar themes that run across the multiple cultures, where it's a worldwide anthropology kind of thing. That's what mm-hmm. kind of hits my buttons. And this is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when every culture we can find has a similar myth. Yeah. Right. And I also love the origins of one-off legends. I wish we, were, we could do a whole show devoted to one-off legends like the Mothman <laughs> and things <laughs> like that, as well as Bigfoot. So I love seeing the explanations that earlier people came up with before there was a strong scientific method applied. And I love rolling my eyes and feeling superior to folks who still don't believe enough to look for research. If, if there is anything that is a hallmark of the skeptical movement, yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> feeling superior to others, our trademark. Woo. So Ugh. all of these make me happy to do the reporting on the missing links, the Yeti, the Bigfoots. Big feet. Thank you. Yeah. I have it written in here as Ask Jim. Yeah. Uh, the Yowie. The Hibigon, the Grassmen, the Snowmen, and the Sasquatch. Hey, snowmen mm-hmm. are Ooh. totally real. <laughs> I saw one in the Newman's front yard this year. Yeah. <laughs> was it abominable? It, it was not very good, but Kira's trying. Our mailman liked it too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I left out the word abominable because it didn't fit the flow. So myths of wild hominids are found on every continent except Antarctica. <laughs> Although, I'm assuming that we can count Lovecraft's Mego. Because it's similar to the Tibetan word for Yeti. He actually took the word Migo from the Hmm. Tibetan word for Yeti. Hmm. I I think, if I remember correctly, the Migo had wings? Yeah, they had wings, but they were mentioned in the Mountains of Madness, which is why I'm linking them to the Antarctica. And I did a lot of time researching that, so shut your mouth, Newman. Oh, God. What a good story. I know. What a bad man. (laughs) So of the various names around the world, most have a similar meaning of wild man or hairy man. So we can count Jem Newman as hairy man. Oh, Absolutely. yes. Absolutely. So sightings sound roughly the same. So they're between two and three meters tall, which doesn't give us any room for error there. <laughs> and they've got some large eyes and prominent brow ridge and forehead. And some attributed footprints put the foot size at 60 centimeters long and 20 centimeters wide. Ooh. 60 centimeters is two feet, which is approximately my shoulder width. <laughs> and that is a hell of a pair of flippers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I, I could see trying to walk in clown shoes like that. No, not good. So the most famous Bigfoot sighting is the Patterson-Gimlin film. Mm-hmm. And that's the one where the female Sasquatch or Bigfoot is surprised along the lake bed and she looks back over her shoulder and she's got the big hairy boobs. And then she trundles <laughs> off into the woods. <laughs> so Patterson spent the rest of his life trying to get it authenticated, like try, trying to prove that it happened. Mm-hmm. And Gimlin was like, nah, nope, backing off here, dude. <laughs> no, it didn't happen. The, this one costume maker said he made a something for Patterson, and it's been going around in circles since the 60s. Right. But even the fact that one of the original people on the film won't back it is mm. kind of a fishy. Well, it was Patterson's expedition to find the Sasquatch. Okay. And Gimlin was just, he figures he was along as a patsy. Mm, he was I just see. there as another pair of eyes. Uh. So the one member of the scientific community that Bigfoot has in its corner is Grover Krantz. He ruined his scientific career saying that Bigfoot was real. Because he, he first watched the video of the, uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film and said, no, that can't be real. And then he watched it again and again. And it kind of sunk in. And then he wrote at least 10 articles on how Bigfoot could be real. Hmm. Yeah. No. Actually, isn't... Oh, totally blanking on... Jane Goodall. Isn't yep. Jane Goodall also sort of like, yeah, Bigfoot could totally exist. She walked that back. Oh, did she? Did okay. she? Because last I'd heard, she was not only saying could exist, but she was on board saying she believed it existed. I, I read a thing saying could exist. I hope it does exist. I'm not sure it exists. I want it to exist. Hmm. Who knows with Jane Goodall anymore? Uh, well, yeah, she's... Getting old? Yes. Well, <laughs> she spent a lot of time around apes. She's had yeah. a long career. Um, yeah. And she, th- there have been, uh, you know, there's the recent controversy about the book that she co-wrote that endorsed a bunch of naturopathic medicine yeah. and mm-hmm. was largely plagiarized as well. So that, that's too bad. But uh, we shouldn't let those sorts of uh, missteps tarnish uh, an otherwise uh, sterling career. She's done some beautiful work in her field. Mm-hmm. Yes. I just wanted to correct, like, the, the only member of the scientific yeah. community. I mean, there are. Yeah. Yeah. The only one who's done done and published papers about the existence of the Yeah, you know, that, like, I, th- I think that that was just kind of a, a comment that she yeah, heard. Somebody asked her, what yeah. do you think of Bigfoot? Yeah. So a study published in the Journal of Biogeography in 2009 by J.D. Lozier and all uh, used ecological niche modeling on reported sightings of Bigfoot. This is just for the North American sightings. I'm not even getting into the Yeti or anything. Mm -hmm. So it was using the locations to infer Bigfoot's preferred ecological parameters. And it was a really close match to the ecological parameters of the American black bear. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. And have you ever seen a bear with mange? Uh, yeah, I've seen pictures, actually. Have you ever seen a bear with mange walking on its hind legs? <laughs> I can see how that would look like a manape. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll put some pictures in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, mangy animals are actually, because a lot of people are not familiar with the way mange looks, mangy animals are actually a suggested explanation for a whole bunch of things, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the chupacabra and... Yeah. yeah. So, of some of the DNA sequence that was supposed to be... Bigfoot, they're mostly finding things like bear, cow, horse, dog, uh, deer, and taper. As one large dog, if that's well, supposed to be a Bigfoot. Somebody saying, here's here's some Bigfoot hair that I pulled right. off of this sighting. It was your dog. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> my favorite inclusion in that list is cow. 
Yeah. <laughs> so two samples matched a fossilized genetic sample of a 40,000-year-old polar bear from the Pleistocene. What? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody with way too much time on their hands and access to a just extinct polar bear. Yeah. Just I'm just surprised that they would even test it against <clears throat> that. Like, how would you... They had it in the, in the it's database. In the database. Yeah. Yeah. Probably in something, one of those really large bio databases that has yeah. everything published. Mm-hmm. So... There are several organizations. The Bigfoot myths won't die. There are organizations that hunt Bigfoot, that put on the hunts, that put on the... Yay, let's go find them. Isn't there a TV show? Organizations and educational television channels. Yeah. <laughs> it's not educational anymore. Just give it up. But I wish they would. I think there's like... Isn't there a reality show about Bigfoot hunters? Probably. Uh, there has been. I don't know if it's still on, yeah. I assume there must be. I read something about a controversy about one because one of the big the hunters they follow is a woman and of course she gets all the flack and from the Bigfoot community saying you know you're not a real hunter you're female blah 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 you know hey the first video of a Bigfoot was a female Bigfoot so lay off (laughs) so is there a Bigfoot after all these years and all these hunts and all these bears with mange I'm gonna have to unequivocally say no there is no hard evidence and no physical proof it's much more likely sightings are residents of the forest planet of Kashyyyk Come to play their Wookiee practical <laughs> jokes on gullible humans. <laughs> wow. Well done. One of my favorite little... Uh, there are so many Bigfoot hoaxes. You know, oh there's, my goodness. Uh, I, could, I could do a whole show on Bigfoot. There's uh, Tom Biscardi, the guy... I think that's the guy who had the basically a gorilla suit frozen in his freezer that he was shopping around trying to claim yeah, that it was a dead yeah. Bigfoot that he yeah. shot. <laughs> like, <laughs> even if it were, don't shoot it, man. Come on. Well, the... I'm going to admit that I used Wikipedia as my primary looking up because their cryptozoological articles are huge and well-researched. Um, but the their article on the Patterson-Gimlin uh, film mm-hmm. is like 40 screens long. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, huge. it's really in-depth. And it goes into the critical analysis and it goes into <laughs> Kant's and his refutation and then his bringing it... Oh, it's 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 a good afternoon read. There's uh, There was also the uh, Finding Bigfoot was a series on Animal Planet. And that was it. It is all about the exploits of the BFRO, the Bigfoot Field Research yes. Organization. And <laughs> it's, it's yeah, like it's Ghost Hunters for Bigfoot. Joe Nickel actually has a, he's a paranormal investigator, a skeptical uh, investigator. He actually has a good article on uh, centerforinquiry.net about, uh, about this series. But the uh, BFRO actually is the scientific organization that was successfully hoaxed by Penn & Teller bullshit where they manufactured a the Sonoma Bigfoot tape and BFRO bought it hook, line, and sinker and it was uh, it was pretty funny. <laughs> so if you want to read about that, I'll have a link in the show notes. Okay, so why don't we move on to maybe a, a lesser known cryptid, the Kting Var. I've okay. definitely never heard of this one. I'm excited. I'm, yeah, I had never heard of it either until doing my research. So, Ktingvar is a common name, but it's also known by a few other names depending on the language that you're speaking. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I'm not going to get those names right. And there's also a sort of English translation of the name as snake-eating cow. Mm-hmm. And it's even it even has a taxonomic classification, the Pseudonovibus spiralis. So pseudo <laughs> right there. Yes, yes. It, it goes by a lot of different things. So basically what it is, is it is a bovine-type 
animal, so a cow-like animal from Southeast Asia, particularly Cambodia, Vietnam. Um, there have been apparently some sightings in Burma as well. So that general area. So it's a cow-like animal. It apparently lives in the forest slash jungles and it has long horns. So about 45 centimeters long, which is about 20 inches, which is pretty long for most cows. And pretty difficult to live in a jungle. <laughs> Right. Sorry, and and these are these are very particularly shaped horns as well. So cattle horns sort of curve up a little bit, mm. but these uh, for the Katingvor, it does a small spiral at Ooh, the end. So it twists around really tight. <laughs> yes. And there's often a connection to snakes with this. So based on the name snake eating cow, um, either they in fact eat snakes or they repel snakes or there's there's something to do with that based on the folklore. I had a hard time actually distinguishing. I think it'll, it varies a little bit from village to village and area to area based on what, uh, what this connection is with this animal. There's been stories of this animal for many, many years and European and American people started hearing some of these stories as early as the the first part of the 20th century where uh, apparently they had heard some stories of these animals being shot and used as tiger bait. Did they catch the Maltese tiger with them? I don't think so. (laughs) This is actually a a very well-studied cryptid. It uh, in the early 90s at least a couple of pairs of the horns of the animals were apparently retrieved and so uh, several scientists did a lot of analysis including dna analysis on these horns to try and figure out if it what kind of species of it was can you do dna analysis on a horn because i thought it was uh keratin keratin yeah. it was the horn and the frontlet and I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it appears when you it's, see pictures of the specimens, it's the bit of the the bone so that it's connects. The bone that, yeah. Yeah. And okay. it, there's also the horn itself, and then the horn um, anchors, I believe it's called. It's kind of two okay. different bits. So there's enough genetic material there, and I think some of the frontlets had a little bit of fur on it, or like hair yeah. on it as well. So it had again some more of the soft tissue where you could get the DNA from. Uh, This is the only part of the animal that's ever been retrieved, by the way. There's no pictures of it anywhere. We've never found any specimens alive or dead. We've only ever had the horns. It's the fanciest part, absolutely. So they were trying to figure out what kind of animal this was, if it was in fact um, a new species, if it was in fact a type of cow, if it was a type of antelope or some other kind of bovine type animal like sheep or goat or something like if that. If it was two dudes in a Katingvor costume, you know, one in front, one back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So but they're trying to figure it out. Anyway. So during the 90s, there was actually a fair number of uh, zoological studies that were published on these specimens. Huh. Um, and for a while, it appeared that they were really leaning in the, yes, it is its own thing, it's its own species kind of fashion. So much so that it was actually placed on the endangered species list. Wow. <laughs> because at the time, the uh, the people investigating thought that, yes, we don't have enough evidence to say that it is, here. The, here's the thing. But we have enough to say, well, it probably could exist and it's probably super endangered yeah. because of what's going Never on in the area. And that's right. the thing with cryptids too. Like right. if any of them exist, they are critically endangered, right? right? Sort of almost by definition. Yeah. And I think that goes toward what Jane Goodall was talking about with 
Sasquatch too, right? You know, and that's the if thing. If it exists, it would need to be protected. Yeah, because if we, uh, if to date, with the number of people that live there and live on the planet and the amount that we know about things, if we haven't seen one by now, especially a large animal like that, it's one thing to discover a new type of ant. You know, yeah. they're, they're tiny, they, they are very easy to hide in big, big forests and jungles and that. But it's another thing to say, oh, there's a brand new type of cow. That we didn't create. That we didn't create ourselves, that we've somehow just missed in the forest so far. That's a big claim. So anyways, um, it was placed on the endangered species list. But since then, since about 2001, the consensus appears to generally be that no, it is not uh, its own species. The DNA, DNA analysis have turned out that they're all the specimens that have been found are in fact just domestic cattle horns. Uh, and they've been, the horns have been shaped yeah. through different techniques to give them that fancy little spiral yeah. on the end. And then some, some of them have ridges too, apparently. So some kind of carving and bending technique. Yeah. And also as well, the type of fur that, that, that has been found between the horns is apparently, or the, the hair there is apparently much more in line with what's found on domestic cattle. Even the wild cattle that we do know exist there don't have that type of pattern and coloration oh, okay. in that. Yeah. And even the person who put the Katingvor on the endangered species list has since walked that back and said, at the time it seemed plausible and we should protect it, but now it just seems that there's no evidence to support it actually being a species. So that is the Katingvor, the snake-eating cow from Cambodia. I'm actually curious, especially with like the reports of them being wild and and ferocious and being shot for tiger bait. Like, I wonder if it's cows that got some form of rabies and yeah. sort of became legendary. You know, it's it's really hard to say. And quite honestly, I had a really hard time figuring out what the the local legends are about it, like what the, the cultural legends are. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do mention that you can still buy these horns in markets in some parts of these countries there. So if you go and you find horns that have a little spiral at the end, they'll say, oh, it's Katingvor horns. But oftentimes they're also sold as anti-snake talismans as well. Okay. So who knows exactly what would have happened, but... Do cows get rabies? Am I just like totally making this up? They're mammals. They're mammals. They could. They could. Rabies, so. I mean, yeah. or if it's not rabies, it could be maybe mad it's like BSC, <laughs> like yeah, mad cow disease, yeah. or some other kind of thing that. Uh, there's all sorts of things that uh, make yeah. animals behave in bizarre ways. I don't know. I don't know if a prion disease would cause the horns to curl up. Though. <laughs> Probably not. So if these Katingvor eat snakes, would they eat? You know flying snakes or flying rod-like things. This is me trying really hard to segue into Ashland's segment. segment. Let's yeah, just do it. Really <laughs> <this>. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the segues to the reality check, folks. Uh, so I decided to look into flying rods. Have you ever taken a picture and when you develop that picture, I'm talking like this is 20 years ago, um, found hey. something on there that wasn't in the room or wasn't uh, in front of you when you took that picture? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There was um, a phenomenon that was popular where there would be uh, basically a ghost on, on the film. And after lots of people started reporting these ghostly figures that were haunting their houses when they were taking pictures of their children, it was discovered that 95% of them could be replicated by putting the cord from the camera in front of the lens. <laughs> so it was just that 
the yeah. like the the wrist strap was hanging in front of in right front of the yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and so just like super goes. out of focus yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are a, a different phenomenon. So they kind of look like if you were looking They're, at are, are they are they dad thumb? No, is that because <laughs> <laughs> I get that in a lot of my photos. So they kind of look like uh, if you're looking at a map with a lot of features on it, and it has a railroad on it. So it's sort of like a a long line that usually curves a little bit, and it has uh, lines perpendicular going across it every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're often found in outdoor photography, and it seems they're particularly popular with people who are trying to take photos at night of UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> they were first reported by a guy trying to take a photograph of a UFO at Roswell, New Mexico. Of course. So automatically they have some awesome alien cred. And they are widely believed to be basically moths. Yeah. <laughs> so a moth flaps its way along in front of the camera, especially as the flash is going. Mm-hmm. And um, the camera takes a photo of this very quick-moving little bug, and it's got pictures of its wings every few steps along this line of its trajectory. Mm-hmm. This has gotten way more attention than pictures of moths has ever warranted. Uh, Some moths are fascinating. Hey, we we went to Waterloo and we spent a lot of time in the butterfly sanctuary there this mm-hmm. uh, this past week, and I took lots of pictures of moths. Mm-hmm. Did they have dad thumb in them? Uh, some of them did, yes. <laughs> uh, but badly taken pictures of moths should not have people who have embarked on world tours giving talks about flying rods. So this guy Jose Escamilla. Uh, he was the first guy to film them in uh, Roswell, and he has uh, made a bunch of videos, and he's done lecture tours, talking to people all about these uh, awesome uh, unnatural creatures. Well, good for him making a career for himself. Yeah. <laughs> find your niche, sir. Um, I wanted to specifically talk about a an, an experiment that was done by China Central Television. They, they did a two-part documentary about flying rods in China. And reported the events from May to June, which surprisingly, see Lauren's laughing, and I, I don't think she understands where this is going. No. They did a super great skeptical analysis of this. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Sorry, China. Yeah, so um, they had seen surveillance cameras in um, one of the city's compounds, and they had video footage that was very similar to that of Jose Escamilla's, and they saw the same kind of rod formation with these little blips every so often along the thing. And so they set out uh, to figure out what they were. They decided they would try and catch them, whatever they were. They were going to catch them, find it out. (laughs) And so they set up huge nets and the same surveillance cameras. And uh, and I, I like that they used the same cameras that they had originally seen them on. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that they could get that same footage. And so they saw the flying rods fly into the net and get trapped. And then they went to see what was in the net. (laughs) That seems like a really great experiment to me. Yeah, really basic. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of these uh, photographic anomalies that turn out to just be bugs. Yeah. And uh, frequently the people who are who are caught up in this fervor will with these pictures will assume that it's a large object traveling very fast that's far away yeah and so what some investigators have done is set up uh, cameras that are kind of that kind of converge but that are offset from each other so, so if this was something far away 
uh, you would see it uh, appear in both cameras. Mm -hmm. But if it was something right in front of the lens, it would only appear in one. And so you, right you see it only appear in one. Yeah. And there's a lot of those really cool and sort of very easy to understand experiments um, that I think are really useful for public education. Yeah. Like when you say we set up a surveillance camera, we saw the flying rods fell in, fall into the trap and we looked in the trap and it was a moth. That's pretty easy to understand. It's a great tool to educate people, not just about what this specific thing is, but about, hey, if you see something mysterious, maybe you can try to figure out what it is instead of just assuming it's this weird alien thing. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. They also did further experiments after they figured out it was moths. Um, just to really nail it down and prove that it was because of the frame rate or whatever that this specific thing was happening. But I think that was really cool. It was like a two-part mm -hmm. documentary on mm -hmm. primetime television about not look at these bizarre aliens that we found, but it was, here's a thing we saw, and we investigated it, and yeah. it was bugs. Hear that, Discovery <laughs> Channel? Okay, let's move from bugs to plants. Uh, Lauren, tell us about cryptobotany. Well, I had to be different because we're talking about cryptozoology, but I prefer cryptobotany because plants are cool. Plants are cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's so weird the amount of extra plants that they could come up with that don't exist in wild and varied flora kingdom as it is already. <laughs> so when people think of cryptobotany or they think of crazy plants, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, probably... Uh... Venus flytrap, or maybe Audrey too. <laughs> yep. That's on my, so man-eating yeah. trees, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or uh, Triffids. Oh, man, I love Triffids. Oh, Triffids. What a good book. The ending was a bit of a letdown. Eh, I liked it. I was okay with it. Although I hear that the, the, the subsequent follow-up book written by somebody else was less good. Yeah, it was. So I was just doing a list of man-eating trees, just in... A few seconds and from the top from off the top of my brain <laughs> and there was Audrey 2 mm -hmm. which is from um, Little Shop Horrors, Horrors. Yeah. Horrors yeah um, there was Tolkien's Old Man Willow which is what oh, Tom, yeah. Tom Bombadil yeah. rescued the hobbits from mm -hmm. there's the Whomping Willow which was in the Yard the Yard oh Hogwarts. yeah, yeah right. and Harry Potter yes yeah. I forgot about that there's the Kite Eating Tree mm. maybe you guys are a little young for that it's from Peanuts Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, I remember that now. Yes. There's the vampire vine and the yativo, which translates to you see me, which is the big viney tree that looks like it's snakes in a lot of uh, different African um, uh, myths. Oh. So that's the African tree is the yativo. Oh, okay. And snake vines. Yes, snake vines. There's also Xanth's tangle trees. And we've talked before oh, how much we yeah. hate Piers Anthony. Yeah. 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 I read a lot of those books when I was a kid. So did I. So there's a whole bunch of different man-eating trees. I don't want to talk about them. You don't want to talk about them? I don't want to talk about okay. man-eating trees. They're not the interesting part of cryptobotany to me, but that's what everybody goes to because yeah. you've got like the um, the pitcher plants, the Venus flytraps, and there's one, I can't, I'll link to it in the show notes. It grows on a beach. It's like critically endangered and you, you get close to it, and the, the sap from it can, can kill you. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I haven't heard of this. Oh, yeah. It was going around Facebook for a while. It's something apple, um, like the deadly apple tree or something. It actually exists. Is. It's critically endangered in Florida. Everything's <laughs> weird in Florida. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the Manchineal. Yes. Tree. It says, like, death apple or something. Um, and it's a re that's a real tree? Yeah, it's a what? real tree. 
All parts of the tree contain strong toxins, some unidentified. Its milky white sap contains forbol and other skin irritants, producing a strong allergic dermatitis. Standing beneath the tree during rain will cause blistering of the skin from mere contact with this liquid. Even a small drop of rain with a milky substance in it will cause the skin to blister. It has been known to damage oh, the paint on cars. Yeah, yeah. Burning the that. tree may cause ocular injuries if the smoke reaches the eyes. Yeah. And the fruit is possibly fatal if eaten. They, yeah. Wow. It's a terrifying tree. That I tree has see... carved quite a niche in the ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see one before I die. <laughs> Hopefully those two events are far removed from each well, other, but who knows? Des- its description, yeah. Its description sounds a lot like that giant hogweed plant that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. is invading. It's from Asia Ontario. originally, yeah, but it's it's over in North America now. Yeah. And it's, you know, every part of it is going to hurt you. Yeah, that And you can't horrifying. kill it, and you can't do anything to it. This tree sounds just like that. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if the compound is similar in some way. It is our new overlord. Despite yeah. the inherent dangers associated, the tree has been used as a source of timber by Caribbean ca- carpenters for centuries. It must be cut and left to dry in the sun to remove the sap. Whoa. You're you're desperate and you need wood, I guess? Yes, yeah. yeah. There's not a lot of like yeah. lumber in, in the Caribbean. No, absolutely. So. A digression into a real plant. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's what makes this so awesome, is because plants are weird. Mm-hmm. Right. And to make up plants that are even scarier than what's out there. <laughs> and some of these crypto-botanical uh, plants aren't scary. Like we've got the the Raskovnik, which was a magical plant in Serbia, and it looked like a four-leaf clover. And it has all of the same medicinal properties as clover. Oh, okay. So that's the <laughs> four-leaf clover legend is actually Serbian. Huh. So I'm curious, you keep mentioning four-leaf clovers as though they don't exist? <laughs> <laughs> no, they do. But this but this legend around them that gave them such magical problems. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't you know, misremembering all of the four-leaf no. clovers that I've found in my life. No. But are you one of those freaks who can find four-leaf clovers? Usually? I am. I, I've them. never been able to. Yeah, I've uh, not super easily, but I can usually find one within a few minutes. Yeah, that's I, pretty easily. You, right, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. just a matter of just not focusing on one at a time, but just kind of... Blurring and looking at... The- maybe focusing on one, but sort of being aware of my whole field of vision, and just something will feel off yeah. in a region, and you just kind of turn, and you're like, oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so the Raskovnik that looks like the four-leaf clover. It's got all the magical properties and only underground animals, clonic animals, can find it. So according to legend, just just because you were asking, the Raskovnik could unlock any gate or paddock, regardless of size, material, or key. Could also uncover treasures buried in the ground. In Bulgarian beliefs, it could split the ground at the place where a treasure lay so people could locate it. So, it, you know, it's lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other supernatural properties attributed to the herb by Bulgarians included the alchemic ability to transmute iron into gold, (laughs) the more general ability to make one who picked it forever happy or wealthy. In some interpretations, the Raskovnik is a wonderful plant that makes true whatever its owner desires. So I'm not going to say that an actual four-leaf clover can do that, (laughs) (laughs) but that might be where the luck comes from. And we've got the uh, Silphium, which was a real plant, but it was it's now extinct. It was the one, if, if you heard back from the Roman Empire, the plant that you could take as birth control that was so good that they ate it into extinction. Hmm. Oh, really? Right, right, right. And it's in some recipes. Yeah. Like it's in um, Epicus's recipe books for the Silphium, and it's 
like there's a couple of cities that have the the plant as their crest on their city mm-hmm. flags and stuff but we can't find any evidence of where it came from because it's we know about it but it's been gone for yeah, so it seems long to be extinct. right yeah. yeah, I always assumed that uh, the the moon tea mentioned in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, which has similar properties, was basically that plant. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite cryptobotanical items are the vegetable lamb of Tartary and <laughs> the similar barnacle goose. So the vegetable <laughs> lamb, the barnacle goose is a real goose, but there is also a legend of a barnacle goose. Right. So of course. I'll, I'll get into these because these are my favorite. When we said we were doing a show on cryptids, this is what my brain immediately went to. So the vegetable lamb, the legend was first reported in the 11th century. It's also called like the Scythian lamb or the Baramets. It's from Central Asia. And it was a plant that grew a lamb at the top of its stalk. And I've got some pictures if you guys want to see. We'll post them. (laughs) So this lamb, the plant was like an umbilical cord. And the lamb would eat around like all of the other uh, foliage around the plant. And when it was gone, the lamb would die and would disperse all of its fluff a- around the area. The, the actual plants that, that it comes from, they don't grow sheep as fruit, obviously. <laughs> but there are some plants when they uh, flower and then turn to seed. You know how dandelions right. turn to seed yeah. and get all fluffy. Yeah. There's some in the Tartary area that get big piles of fluff like that. So okay. they were, they were mm-hmm. using this as a way to explain it. Interesting. Saying, okay, so it's actually right. a little lamb in there. Yeah, a, a it's fol- a lamb. Folklore explaining yeah. the, the observed huh. phenomena. Yeah, that's interesting. interesting. So, yeah, the underlying myth is a real plant, which is Sibodium barometz. It's a fern, and it was known under various names. And the lamb is produced by removing the leaves from a short length of the fern's woolly rhizome. And when the rhizome is inverted... It looks like a woolly lamb with the legs being formed by the severed bases of the ferns. Oh, cool. So that's what it looks like. And then you can use that. You can use it like a, a vegetable type of um, cotton fiber, like right. cotton or <laughs> linen or linen. vegetable fibers. Yeah, you can okay. use this, the same sort of thing. Right. So that was the wool. So similar to the vegetable lamb is the barnacle goose. And I'm not talking about the real barnacle goose because that's a real animal, but there was a medieval legend, it was in England, about these geese that would come off of these tree barnacles. So the barnacles would form and these, when they over the, over the river, and when they were ripe, they would drop off and become geese. <laughs> and that is how they explained migration, because all of a sudden the geese were there. Right. They were fully formed geese, and they weren't there a couple of days before. Right. They didn't nest there. They, they, didn't, yeah, yeah. they didn't know where they were. But here are these geese in the river. They must have come off of these barnacles. Because the two events sort of happen at the same time. Nice. So that's a little primer on cryptobotany. <laughs> it's a wild and woolly world. <laughs> and I love it. And everybody else should look into it too. It doesn't get the fun of a Bigfoot or whatever, but... I think it's really interesting that there's numerous examples where they're combining animals and plants. Yeah. And that, that's probably the most interesting and different thing because it's, it's yeah, it's a, it has that animal connection to mm-hmm. it somehow. That sort of chimeric quality is a hallmark of cryptozoology generally and, and folklore throughout the world. Yeah. Right. It's funny to me that cryptozoologists don't focus more on plants because there are almost certainly more plants that we haven't yet discovered or cataloged than there are megafauna. Mammals. Yeah. You know, like big. Yeah. <laughs> well... 
I can understand why they don't though, because as much as there are so many plants yet that hopefully we will get to discover before we, you know, chop them into extinction, they're often very similar in a lot of ways to other things and they don't always do something interesting right? Forty clover isn't as sexy as Bigfoot. Yeah, exactly. Bigfoot is a thing. It's kind of like us and it could do stuff. Whereas, Mm. you know, a new type of uh, pitcher plant, like even pitcher plants, one of the reasons that people find them so interesting is because it's like, what do you mean? It's a plant eating an animal. That's backwards, right? And so that's, that's creepy. But, you know, a new type of grass on the savanna that we've never seen before is really cool. But it's just not sexy. That's what it is. One of the pitcher plants is actually its scientific name is actually after Attenborough, the biggest one. It's kind of cool. Oh, it's uh, it's called Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> yes, it's called Bodie McBoatface. Petition to have Sir David Attenborough change his name <laughs> to Bodie McBoatface. It's called David Attenborough, and then the rest of the scientific name. It's That's pretty funny. awesome. So we have one more uh, cryptid to cover uh, in depth. Uh, and then we're going to kind of do a bit of sweeping up uh, <laughs> some of the ones that we uh, that we didn't cover uh, in detail. Uh, so, Laura, why don't you tell us about the North American jackalope? Oh, this was my favorite one to look up. Laura I was got so three. excited. Got I two. offered. <laughs> <laughs> so the jackalope, have you all heard of the jackalope before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been to gift shops that are Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Themed. If you've been to a place that has stuffed, uh, like taxidermied animals or a kitsch of any kind. Wall you drug. Probably... There's a lot of jackalopes at wall drug. <laughs> yeah. you, you'll, you'll probably run a, come across a, a jackalope. The first up. time I ever saw one was on an episode of Frasier. And I was like, wait, wait, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, if you spend any time watching Dave Collier for any reason. Yes, yes. So the jackalope is uh, alive and well in pop culture. That is for sure. Uh, several bands have been named after it. There's brands of alcoholic beverages that have it as their as their uh, insignia, all sorts of things like this. So for anybody who isn't familiar with it, it's basically a jackrabbit with antlers. So the name jackalope comes from uh, antelope antlers and jackrabbit. Uh, so it is a pretty strong part of... Um, American folklore, particularly Western American mm-hmm. folklore in sort of uh, the more ranching type states. It's it's pretty prominent there, but it's well known across North America or in particularly the U.S. And it became a big part of the culture in the 1930s. The first instance of the jackalope was actually made by a man named Douglas Herrick and his brother. His brother is never named in these articles, and I have no <laughs> idea why. I just don't know. Anyway, um, where are they? Larry, Daryl, or Daryl? Something like that. Where basically they were out hunting one day, and they shot a jackrabbit, and they brought it back to their workshop. They were they did some taxidermy. And they put the jackrabbit on a table and it happened to butt up against a pair of deer antlers and they said, let's put these two things together. (laughs) And they did. And peanut butter met chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) No, pretty much. And then they sold it for uh, $10 to a curiosity shop, which in the 30s was a lot of money, remember? Mm -hmm. And uh, it kind of went from there. So they- needed love during the Dust Bowl. (laughs) They did. And so this pair, um, they made- at least a thousand together, and then uh, the brother continued making many of them, many, many more for several years, whereas the original, uh, the Douglas Herrick, stopped doing that. 
After so he kept his brother chained in a basement. That's why nobody. Yes, uh, something like that. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the jackalope is something that people think is funny, but people there's nobody who actually really believes. Right. right? So I mean, there now I won't say that there's nobody who actually <laughs> believes, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But by and large, in American pop culture, it is it's a mythical creature that most people don't believe is ever real. Like, it is yeah. well known, it is very easy to find that the first one created was created by <laughs> some guys in Wyoming yeah. when they went hunting, right? Um, so it's just a tall tale, really. And uh, it's particularly popular in smaller uh, areas with lower populations. And it's actually used to their benefit in a lot of ways. They, they mm. keep the, the tall tale alive because it's a way to attract tourism, um, celebrate community, you know, bring people together in a way around these tales. So it's not, they, they're not actually out looking for jackalopes. They know it's not real, but it's still fun to make an eight foot tall jackalope statue in a small town somewhere, right? Because why not, yeah. right? Um, and so, and a lot of the, a lot of the claims in that around the jackalopes are really in that um, kind of tongue in cheek kind of vibe. Some of the things that jackalopes can apparently do is, well, they're apparently very vicious and they will gnaw hunters' legs. So you should wear stovepipes if you're out hunting so that they can't get to your shins. Um, they can also, however, uh, imitate human song. And so when cowboys are singing around the campfire, they'll usually join in, often in the tenor range. <laughs> That's so specific. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, now, if you want to try and try and test your luck with a jackalope and you want to try and trap one, you can. Your best bait is whiskey. They <laughs> they prefer that. Um, and apparently jackalope milk is highly desirable as well. Although you'd have to be pretty brave because they're so vicious. So to try to milk a jackalope <laughs> would be a pretty daunting task. Yeah. Um, and now how do we get more jackalopes? Well, that's a tough thing too because apparently they, uh, they can only mate during lightning flashes. <laughs> Unfortunately though... Not a so, lot of stamina on so, those guys. Yeah, you know, and I mean, you have to wait for these lightning flashes. Like, that's that's pretty tough timing, right? Like, what if there's no storms rolling through? And their antlers often get in the way. So there's not a lot of luck. So maybe that's why we don't see a lot of jackalopes or live jackalopes around. Awkward. <laughs> um, so these are these are really I think these are really fun claims compared to some of the claims that you'll you'll hear for some of the cryptids. I, I think these are just yeah. really fun. It really shows yeah. us just that tongue in cheek kind of nature. The, the line that came to my head was from The Simpsons all those years ago with the it's sexually attracted to fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 pretty much and and like I said a lot of the, the communities that kind of celebrate the jackalope they have a lot of fun with it and a lot of play in several places in wyoming and south dakota they actually yeah. sell uh, jackalope hunting licenses so yeah you can um it's only valid on june 31st from midnight to 2 a.m and you can only buy one of these licenses if you have an iq between 50 and 72 Ouch. which is pretty low yeah and hundreds of these licenses have been sold over the years because it's it's fun why not so it, it's a it's a really fun kind of cryptid now the idea of a, the jackalope is a very North American kind of thing, but the idea of a horned rabbit has been around for a long time. 
accounts as early as the 13th century from Europe, Central America, and Persia have come out about these rabbits with these horns. Whether or not they had magical abilities would vary from the time and the area, and they would keep happening, but up in uh, somewhere around the 17th and 18th centuries, they basically stopped reporting these because the scientific community had decided that, yeah, this is not a real thing. Those scientists always get in the way about I fun. know, I know, exactly. Forcing down the real narrative. <laughs> yeah. Scientific um, so again, it, it's another one of those creatures that it's not as broad as the Bigfoot per se, but it definitely does have that mm-hmm. reach. Now, there's actually a really interesting thing that uh, could be the basis for this. What they now think, what is now thought, is that these horned rabbits are actually rabbits that are infected with the Shope papilloma virus, yeah. which oh, is yeah. similar to that. Yeah. Have you guys seen pictures yeah. of these? Scary and bad. So, Sad. if you haven't seen it... Oh. So, oh, that's horrifying. That's that. So, for obviously our listeners can't see it, but you can definitely oh, Google it. it. They don't want to. Don't look it, it up. It'll be... In, but basically, these... I had it as a desktop background for a while on my work computer. You were so horrid. <laughs> that's awful. These poor bunnies. So, basically, this, this virus causes these um, long antler-like warts to grow on the rabbits, and they mainly grow on their heads and faces. So if you look at pictures, yeah, for a lot of them, it causes them to not be able to eat, and they starve to death. It's really terrible. Um, But if you were to see a rabbit out in the wild with these things, you you can see some pictures, and they definitely look like horns or antlers or something. Killer bunnies. Yeah, so you could, and you know, you would probably be afraid of something like that, because that's not a regular rabbit. So (laughs) you can, it's really easy to understand where that would have come from. And the American jackalope has some uh, European cousins. So a very similar type of creature is the Bavarian Wolpertinger, which is basically like a jackalope, except it has wings as well. (laughs) And a beer. Why not? a Wolpertinger beer. Well, exactly. And it's in very much, it's used in the same way there as it is here. Mm -hmm. There's also the Swedish Svander, uh, which is... It has the horns, it has the rabbit part, but it also has pheasant and I think one other, maybe squirrel parts on it as well. So it's it's got a few more things, but again, it's this kind of fantastical creature that's used in community folklore and just kind of like a tongue-in-cheek kind it's of way. Swedish platypus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the jackalope is a really, really fun one. <laughs> Makes me think of cabots. Cat and rabbit had a baby. It's a cabot. I so hoped when I was younger that cabots were real. That'd be a pretty cute thing. Uh, they were um, popularized in anime. Mm. Oh, okay. And there's some... Oh, that's so cute! <laughs> showing some photoshopped cabots. I know we can't people see make that noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that one! You can see why you know, 10-year-old me wanted a cabot as a pet. Oh, my God. Oh, my God! There are totally... There has to be people breeding cats to have giant rabbit ears. Like, yeah. that has to be happening right now. So we're going to sweep up now, are we? We are. So there are so many more cryptids that we could cover on the show. And maybe we'll do maybe we'll do another round of these uh, in the future. But just in brief, there's the Akoro Kamui of indigenous Japanese folklore, which is a giant octopus that prowls the depths of Hokkaido's Funko Bay. Of course there is. Uh, or the uh, Jersey Devil, the bipedal yes. goat with bat wings, a forked tail, and a blood-curdling scream that is said to haunt the pine barrens of New Jersey. Or El Chupacabras, the uh, spiny creature the size of a small bear that drinks the blood of livestock in Mexico and Puerto Rico. Right. But... 
after a while, all these creatures kind of start to blur together. So why don't we just make things a little more interesting? Complete with cheesy game show music. Complete with cheesy game show music. It's time to play Cryptid Fact or Cryptid Fiction. It's all fiction. <laughs> Pro tip. So this game <laughs> consists of a series of eight rounds. And each round, I'm going to name and briefly describe a cryptozoological creature, and the panelists will have to select either fact or fiction. Fact, in this case, obviously doesn't mean the cryptid actually exists, but instead it means that the folklore and first-hand accounts of the creature as described do exist. While fiction means that either the folklore differs from the description that I gave, or I just made it up. For each round, we'll rotate who answers first, and I've randomly selected the starting order. Laura will answer first, again, sorry, randomness is clumpy, uh, followed by Ashlyn, then Lauren. Everybody ready? Yep. Okay. Cryptid fact or cryptid fiction. The Ganjang Gejang, also known as the Crabmen, are monsters said to terrorize fishing villages in South Korea. Laura, cryptid fact or cryptid fiction. The Crabmen of South Korea. Oh, let's go fact. Okay. Oh, right. Uh, I'm supposed to be Ashlyn? Um, fiction. Too close to the octopus thing. I've heard that name before. I'm going to say fact. Okay. Well, Ashlyn is correct. Yes! It is fiction. Ganjang Gejang is actually a traditional Korean seafood dish made by, fer- <laughs> <laughs> made by fermenting fresh raw crab in a spicy soy sauce. So, I don't know my Korean food. Any kind of fermented... Like, seafood should just not happen. It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. The people of Iceland would disagree with you. I understand, and they're wrong. Would you like <laughs> me to pee on a shark's head and bury it for you for a year? Or don't. How to prepare lutefisk. Take one lutefisk, throw it in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> would you prefer a puffin that had been peed on and buried for a year? Anyway... Round so two. So much pee. What's with all the urine? Ammonia. Ammonia. Oh. Preservative. Whoa. Round two. Rwandan folklore tells of the Virunga lion, a great lion with a face of a gorilla that prowls the foothills of Rwanda and Uganda, preying upon poachers and unwary travelers alike. Ashlyn, cryptid fact or cryptid fiction? Oh, I watched a really good documentary about the Virunga Park, so I'm wondering if you stole the name from there or if it's like a, a thing that many things are named after there uh, i think it's a mountain range or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. fact lauren fiction and laura fiction okay well we're all tied up because that <laughs> is fiction i made that one up too but i do wish it were true uh you want to hear something truly horrifying Estimates from late last year point to less than 900 mountain gorillas left alive in the wild. I really wish there were some sort of gorilla-faced lion that were uh, uh, mauling poachers. (laughs) Anything that's going to exclusively target poachers, I'm all right with. (laughs) Okay, round three. Springheel Jack was a fixture of Victorian English folklore. A diabolical gentleman with fiery eyes and clawed hands, he was able to leap high fences and escape pursuit with ease. We are starting with Lauren. Fact, fact, fact. Cryptid fact or cryptid (laughs) fiction. Lauren goes with fact. No, I believe that was fact, fact, fact. (laughs) (laughs) Laura. Um... Are you really going to go against that confidence? (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> I'm also going back. Okay. <laughs> Do you know or are you just... To, no, I, yeah. she seems really confident. <laughs> it is indeed a fact. I've written essays on Spring Hill Jack. Yep. It is a, a delightful bit of Victorian folklore. And a lot of the pictures are super creepy. It's like a <laughs> slender man of the Victorian era. Ooh. On springs. Yeah. So uh, everybody's tied with two points so far. And we're going on to round four. Icelandic folklore holds that the Lodsalungur, did I say that right? Lodsalungur, yeah, or fur-bearing trout is an inedible fish that swarms rivers uh, to punish humans for their wickedness. Starting with Laura, cryptid fact or cryptid fiction? Yeah, fact. Okay. Ashlyn. Don't think you would have stumbled over a word that you made up. I'm going to go with fact. I am crafty. (laughs) I want to say fiction because I don't think they've found a fish they couldn't eat. Google <laughs> <laughs> fact. Okay, and everybody gets it this round as well. That is a fact. Tales of the fur-bearing trout were also popular in North America in the early 20th century. Like the jackalope, many taxidermied examples have been produced over the years. <laughs> it just sounds dirty. <laughs> it's because you have a dirty mind, darling. That's it. <laughs> round five. The Popelik monster. Jeez. <laughs> it comes from Popelik. Is a human goat hybrid that lives beneath a train bridge in Kentucky. It is said to lure passers by onto the trestle bridge and then hold them fast until they're struck by an oncoming train. Ooh. And this one's mine first, right? Yeah. Ashlyn, cryptid fact or cryptid fiction? The Popelik monster. Uh, fiction. It's too troll under the bridge. Okay. Lauren. I want to say fact because I know Popelik exists, but I'm not Is sure it in if Kentucky? it's Kentucky. Yes, I'm not sure if it's something that I read from another cryptid, and you're making it up. Yeah, we'll go fact. Okay, and Ashlyn, you want fiction? Yes. Or did you? No, I want to change my mind, but yes, I. Okay, <laughs> Laura. Hmm. Yeah, I. It all sounds. It sounds like it could be a true tale, but you might have just taken the name of one thing and the story of another thing. And mix them up. But I have no way of knowing. So fact. Fact. Okay. And Lauren and Laura pull ahead of Ashlyn. Because oh. that one is a fact. Not yeah, only I know that, there was a real place named Popelik. Yeah. Not, not only that, as <laughs> difficult is as it is to believe, this fictional monster has indeed killed at least one person. Just last month, a 26-year-old tourist was struck by a train and hurled from this very trestle bridge. What was she doing there? Looking, Looking for, the for the monster. Yep. <laughs> uh, her boyfriend, actually, was also there with her, and he survived by, like, just dropping down and doing fingernails on the bridge. Uh, we she call was... that the Lost Boys move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cryptozoology kills, I guess? Stupidity kills. Round six. Lauren. Hi. Cryptid fact or cryptid fiction? The Swamp Squatch, or Stink Ape, is a hominid said to be indigenous to Florida. Yep. uh, And is apparently accompanied by a foul odor of cabbage or skunk. Well, gee, it's just really easy to give me this one. But yes, that that is a fact. Okay. Fact. Fact. And you are all correct. Unfortunately, the random number generator put Lauren first, Mm -hmm. and she had researched the manipes. But it was too too good not to include... (laughs) I was going to mention Stink Ape in my section. I just like, no, narrow it down. As Lauren mentioned earlier, everything is weird in Florida. (laughs) Yep. 
Uh, round seven, Laura. The Abbotsford Angel, an airborne cryptid sighted in British Columbia, is sometimes associated with the great skyfish in Aboriginal folklore. Hmm. I don't know. Angels and fish don't really look a lot alike. Angelfish? <laughs> <laughs> Counterpoint. <laughs> I am going to go fiction. Ashlyn? I'm also going fiction. That seems tenuous. Also, we've had a long run of facts, so I'm going to go fiction. <laughs> ah, you're playing the meta game. Well, you are correct. I made all of that up. Abbotsford has no angel, and as far as I can determine, there is no skyfish, great or small, in Aboriginal folklore. Well, and just the idea of a skyfish, it's like, they've got birds. Why would they call it a skyfish? It would be some kind of a bird thing. But it could be a fish in the sky. Yeah, but a fish, like I said, a fish and an angel don't look alike, and they don't have angelfish, so they don't know what that looks like. <laughs> well, ulikin. <laughs> just flying I guess air. so, I guess so. And for the record, uh, actually, um, flying rods are sometimes called skyfish. Yes, I had heard that. Round... Do you not know what fish look like? <laughs> Round eight, Ashlyn. Mm -hmm. The Punkwaji is a three-foot-tall humanoid creature with a long nose, big fingers, and large ears that possesses the ability to transform into a walking porcupine. <laughs> cryptid fact or cryptid fiction? That sounds way more like, like the tales of like brownies and things. It doesn't sound like a cryptid. It sounds more like a, like a fairy or something in like Norwegian culture. I don't know, fiction... I really wanted Mrs. Tiggy Winkle to be true. And because my spirit animal is a hedgehog, I'm going to say fact. And Laura. Oh, jeez. I don't know. Where did you say it was from? You didn't. Uh, I didn't oh, know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, fiction. And I believe that makes Lauren our victor, <laughs> because that is a fact. The Punkwaji figures in the folklore of the Wampanoag Aboriginal people. Where is that group of people from? Uh, New England. Huh. Or whatever they called New England, because they had it first, I guess. <laughs> but that region. Uh, yeah, I think it's that uh, Maryland region. Congratulations, Lauren, on your victory. Uh, I'm going to add up Told the, the points cryptids. here. <laughs> so Lauren got seven out of eight. Then I think Laura comes in second with six out of eight. Yeah, and Ashlyn got five. Well, and I was so tempted after I said, I'm going to look through the list for something ridiculous to talk about. And Jim was like, don't look too closely. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's going to be a game and I really want to read this list very thoroughly now. <laughs> but I didn't. Yeah, that's good. I was honorable. I appreciate that. I, I looked really hard uh, for, for less common uh, cryptids yeah. and I specifically searched against that list. Some of them are <laughs> from that list, but... Uh, uh, Didn't yeah. want all of them to be from there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got a couple of books in this very room. <laughs> so uh, I think that's going to do it for our uh, episode on cryptozoology. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, what are we talking about next uh, month, Ashlyn? Well, if you like that quiz, stay tuned for a very special edition of next month's Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, where it will be the game show show. The game show show? Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> Each of our panelists is going to come up with a quiz to uh, determine who among us is the nerdiest nerd. And Jim. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I guess we could just take next month off. Yeah, sorry we spoiled it for you guys. <laughs> 
So yeah, I thought we could each uh, come up with a quiz on whatever topic most interests us. And so there will be four quizzes. You can play along at home. And we'll see who reigns supreme. Thanks for listening, folks. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. So, uh, you're listening to Life, the Universe, and everything else. This is a sound test. This is what my voice sounds like. This is what my voice sounds like, and I'm going to speak at a normal rate. Instead, <laughs> like, unlike Jem, who seems to want to go double speed on time. I um, listen to all of my podcasts so at one and a half speed, but... Uh, drives them crazy. Yeah, whenever Laura and I listen together, we got to slow it down. And it, honestly, when I listen to a podcast at regular speed now, it sounds like they're deliberately talking slow yeah. as though they think their listeners are idiots. Yeah. I find that especially with uh, things like Planet Money, they're like... Hello, today we'll be examining. <laughs> no, I can't listen to this. Okay, we need the other two people to talk. <laughs> How's that Because <laughs> she might do that. Yeah, she might exactly. hop on the table and be part of the show. She can be our cryptid. Today on the show, we're talking about cryptozoology. Yes, I'm going to pronounce it cryptozoology. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to stop me. Uh, except unsubscribe, I guess. P- please don't do that. Now you're just sounding desperate. <laughs> yeah. Laura's making that face less than a minute into recording. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually about 11 o'clock we get that face. Yeah. <laughs> Have we not hit the, uh, the, uh, the plesiosaur, um... Oh, sh- that was gonna be a joke, too. Uh... Nope. The... <laughs> gone Jim. No, the Did you the, script that joke? N- Just go No, it. I didn't script that joke. That was <laughs> off should've. the cuff. I should have. Obviously I should have. The uh when the the computers <laughs> I work with computers as well. So that general area. But it's of the bovine ilk? It is of the bovine ilk. Laura <laughs> looking at some weird porn. You weren't supposed to see that. I was going to reveal it to you guys during my next segment. Uh, okay. Alright, that's the end of my segment. I'm gonna go get another drink. Yeah. There's the kite-eating tree. Mm. Maybe you guys are a little young for that. It's from Peanuts. Pe- oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, okay. I've, yes, I remember that now. Yes. Yeah. Were you young for that? Aren't you guys like literally exactly the same age? No. I think Lauren's probably a year older than me or something. A couple. 1980. Oh, yeah. You're four years older than me. <laughs> I'm 84. Right. I don't know. <laughs> you act like it. <laughs> <laughs> you can use it like a, a vegetable type of... Um, what's the stuff I like? That's a broad question. <laughs> <laughs> a vegetable type of fiber for spinning. Fiber. <laughs>
cotton fiber like right. cotton or <laughs> linen or linen. vegetable fibers yeah you can okay. use this the same sort of thing right. so that was the wool i was like yeah. grain <laughs> like grain carbs i was gonna say carbs? 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 that's what i was gonna say <laughs> so i don't know if laura's if i'd said what's the thing i like to laura it would have been a much smaller list so maybe yeah. she would have got it Coffee? i would have said nothing <laughs> <laughs> okay lauren no lauren yes lauren <laughs> Mixed messages. I have the order written down here, and I still, I still get it wrong. Or El Chupacabra. El Chupacabra. Oh God. El El Chupacabras. The folklore of the Wampano uh, Wampano Aboriginal people. Thanks for listening, folks. Good night. Bye. Good night. You can't wave. They, they can't. They, the listeners can't hear your wave. I don't think they need four good nights.